0: The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Tonight, the Oscars will be awarded. Showcasing this event will be the largest gathering of rented jewelry and borrowed bracelets. Women will grace their seats with capped teeth, colored wigs, nip and tuck plastic surgery, and no doubt Tom Hanks will monitor his blood sugar before leaving home. Other aging rivals will wear undergarments to hide incontinence, and others will simply arrive under the influence of alcohol. If there is anything we can call deep about this event, it is the spackled cosmetics spread in cre- into creases and lines. The sequin gowns and the tuxedos tell this audience that this is the evening for which you dress. Yes, this is a contest for a temporal crown of success. Some of Hollywood's actors have died this last year. David Bowie has left for the final Space Oddity, and Eagles' Glenn Fry hopefully has found a peaceful, easy feeling. Their recent deaths provoke another question. How were they clothed when they left this planet? And what will you be wearing when you leave this place and the curtain drops for you? Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. What we're going to discuss this morning has to do with the quest to interpret suffering. How do we make sense of suffering? I can assure you that after dealing with this for a while in the study and experience, that I can guarantee you that if you really make that an earnest quest, you will become discontent. You will be frustrated. In fact, you can understand in a broad sense what suffering is all about when you consider the fall. Our sin against God as mankind deserves a a death, deserves a judgment, and we see that happening. Now, there are times when we know that there there are causes of suffering, and there are ways to deal with certain aspects of suffering. And one of the ways you see it is 1 Corinthians 11 when it gives us an admonition not to take the Lord's table in a cavalier fashion. We should be holy and we should be resolute in our purity as we approach that table, because there can be consequences that involve suffering. There are other times when suffering evolves, and we're not sure exactly why, but we are also instructed to call to the elders of the church and ask for them to pray over us, as we see in James chapter 5. But we can't necessarily pull together a strict cause-and-effect relationship with suffering. Take a look at John chapter 4 as Jesus begins his ministry. He meets an official in John chapter 4 at Capernaum, and his official reports that his son is sick. And as we read through the passage, we find out that his son had a fever. Jesus didn't even go to the house. But when asked for help, Jesus said, you can go home now. Your son is healed. And he took Jesus at his word. And sure enough, that was confirmed. We don't know the reason for the suffering of the son. But we know that Jesus fixed it. He took care of it. Now, if you drop down a little bit, you, you find that there's another situation where there's someone who's at Bethsaida and Bethesda, and they are trying to get into the water to help their lameness. And the problem is that this person can't get into the water as it stirs up, and the, supposedly the medicinal waters that should help him, he's, he's unavailable to them. He, he, he can't get access to them. And Jesus says, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? And he's like saying, sure, I'm I'm delighted to. So what does he say to him? He says, I want you to get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, the man was cured. Remarkable miracle. But then something else happens. As they separate for a little bit, they come back together at the temple. And Jesus says this to him in in, uh, verse 14. Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now here you have a cause and effect. This man was involved in something that was habitual, and Jesus said, if you want to stay healthy, you're going to stay on track. Now look at John chapter 9. The disciples have observed all this, and they are learning, they're studying, they're, in, they're seeing, receiving, receiving instruction, and, and they come across this other event in John chapter 9, and it says here, John says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples also asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. So what are the disciples doing? They're picking something up, right? They've been watching what's happening and think, all right, maybe we can find cause and effect. Let's see if we can get this down. And then Jesus throws them a curve in a good way and says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. This happened so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. In your quest to understand and interpret what God is doing in suffering, how do you get on the bullseye here? How do you find it? It's a frustrating endeavor, and we need to be very cautious about assigning cause and effect to suffering situations. In fact, the methodology is really pretty bizarre. You see what Jesus does to clear, uh, to clear up the blind man's problem? To give him sight? He reaches down and he grabs some mud, puts spittle into it, and grinds it into his pupils. Now, is that orthodox or unorthodox? I mean, you think about going to the ophthalmologist. You come out of the waiting room with caked eyes for the remedy that you need, and you're pulling the stuff out of your eyes and you're lifting lifting your your hands to heaven, and you're saying, Dear God, Dale Sprick or Sam Bernstein. You know, (laughs) this is not an orthodox situation. And the disciples are supposed to make something out of this. When we get over to John chapter 11 we see that Lazarus is laid up sick. The report that gets to to Jesus is that he is sick, he knows, but he knows it's not a sickness that's unto death. But he doesn't disclose all that right away to the disciples. What I find so amazing as we look at this is that there is such a bigger picture of the suffering and the the glory that attends the suffering that we need to get a broader view, a broader lens to this. So Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick. He discloses that Lazarus is sick, but he waits two days. And he knows what's going to happen. Lazarus dies. And then he says to his disciples, we're going to go wake up Lazarus. And one of them says, oh, well, you know, uh, they know the the town is rough where they're about to go. Uh, You know, Lord, he'll get better. If he just sleeps, he'll get better. No, no. Lazarus is dead. Now they know they're really going to Bethany. And Thomas, Thomas gets a lot of bad credit. You know, that We look at him in John chapter 20 and say, boy, if he only only didn't doubt, we give him a hard time. Jammus right here in this section says, with a pessimistic tone, okay, let let us all go die with him. But he was brave. He was ready to go with his master. He was ready to give up his life to do what his master wanted to do with respect to Lazarus. All these players are involved with this suffering. When they arrive, both Mary and Martha come up to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We both understood that. But all these different lives are being touched at the same time. The mourners that were there to comfort Martha and Mary were sobbing. And they were saying, could not the one who opens the eyes of the blind, could he not have, have saved Lazarus? And Jesus is about to give them an exhibition they'll never forget. And he goes up to the tomb, and he tells Lazarus to come out. You know the story. Lazarus comes out, they take away the linens, and Lazarus is walking around. Now, do we call that the resurrection? No, not in that sense, because Lazarus is going to die again. But he was resuscitated, and he was evident. When you look at the people that were involved because of the suffering, because of the remedy, God was glorified. Other things were happening. And while you may not have a causal relationship from an intuitive human level, God was doing something great, even to the point of Jesus' enemies. They had evidence in front of them. Lazarus was alive. In John chapter 12, it says that Lazarus is reclining at the table as they're having a party. And what did the Sanhedrin do? They can think of nothing but deriding Lazarus and deriding Jesus and actually threatening to kill Lazarus and Jesus to keep their position safe before Rome. Now, how does that logic work? If Jesus can raise Lazarus, couldn't he do it again? Couldn't he possibly raise his own life again? Can't they tease this out and understand? And if they can do that, do you think maybe he could displace one nation from another, like supplant Rome, supplant the Sanhedrin? Jesus had power, and they were in denial, even though the evidence was right before them. You see, when it comes down to suffering, we have to deal with things. Do I want to worship the God who allows suffering? Or do I want to contort this and move this in a direction that I like? Do I want relief or do I want belief? There is a difference between the two. And we often get jammed up because we are looking at a quest for an interpretation of suffering when in fact we don't see it as a regular portion of life where suffering has to be accepted and understood to be part of life in this fallen world. You see, what happens is we get used to things. Bertrand Russell who is no friend of Christianity, calls it the inductive error. He says when the, the chicken sees the farmer come in every day, day after day after day, giving the feeding, day after day, month after month, the farmer is really welcomed by the chickens. They're delighted to see him, because it's meal time. But one day the farmer comes in and grabs the chicken and cuts its head off. That is called the inductive error. As it has been, so it will be. And that is a huge mistake. For us, not to anticipate suffering is to be naive about life. And when life is staring us right in the face with suffering, it makes every reasonable... It's every reasonable... It's reasonable for every person to want to, to, to cure that suffering. If it's within your realm to make something better out of the suffering and re- retrieve a, a sense of, of equilibrium, that's a good thing. But there are times when God puts us in a situation where we can't reverse it. And what we need to wor- work with at that point is the whole concept of losing. We don't like to talk about that. In fact, we've got politicians who don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about winning all the time. But Jesus talked about losing. Take a look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus replied The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified I tell you the truth unless a kernel of wheat falls to the earth falls to the ground and dies it remains only a single seed but if it dies it produces many seeds What is Jesus talking about He's talking about his death He's talking about the fact that when he dies, something much greater is going to happen. There's going to be an impact. And he says in verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant Will, will be also. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So now we get this, this picture. Jesus is seeing his body moving toward a crucifixion. It hasn't happened yet. He hasn't been raised from the dead yet. And the people are all watching to see how much power does he have. He's got enough to pull off the blind man, but what about this Lazarus thing? And then, The Lazarus thing happens. The Messiah is on the scene. And the Messiah tells the audience and his disciples that in order to win, you have to lose. You have to plant your body. And the the children of God will understand this in the way that the world cannot. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Apostle Paul picks up this whole theme. And in the, con- in the context of this discussion on the resurrection, we're going to look just at a small portion. Apostle Paul is trying to lay it out for the audience, for the Corinthians, about the resurrection. And he says, in 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body. And then he goes on to say in verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What do you do with that? We are told that the body is sown, in dishonor, ever been to a hospital bed? Ever see someone who's moving in the direction of expiration? After all the IVs and all the bloating, all the discoloration of the skin, the different texture of the skin, the failing body is experiencing dishonor is experiencing weakness as it begins to lose its grasp on this life. It looks like loss. It looks like losing. But the Apostle Paul tells us that we are raised, that Christians are raised in glory and in power. Do you really buy that? Because that will make a difference in how you view suffering. You may not understand its cause relationship, but you can understand the result as God fulfills his promises. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Do you believe that description? As outwardly our bodies are failing, the fuse is, is lit, It's burning up. The body is having trouble at the outward appearance. It is having trouble functioning. And it looks as though everything in the being is falling apart. But Paul says, no, no, no. Inwardly, inwardly, the spirit is being renewed and strengthened. And just because the body is throttling and shutting down and throttling the expression of the spiritual life inside, doesn't mean it's not working in the right direction. Do you buy that? Do you believe that? Paul says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us in eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You see someone suffering in a wheelchair, in a, in a bed, for a long period of time with Alzheimer's, and you say that's momentary. Compared to eternity, it's a snap. It's a snap. And Paul says, so... Because of these facts, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. My son is teaching me some things about uh, stealth. It's all the pedestrian stuff and, you know, public domain, nothing, nothing classified. But he says that we have this, what is called RAM. And it is radar absorbent material. And so what happens is, as a radar signal sends it out looking for a plane, the, the radar signal actually is captured and absorbed by the material in the plane that is stealth. And so the radar waves that are returned back now to the station perceives an empty space. Isn't that remarkable? They send something out. It comes back as though there's nothing in that space, what they perceive. If technology like that can happen in the material world Do you think, do you think that maybe we could just be suffering under a little misperception about what's really on the other side? Something is a little bit cloaked to the glory of God for his timing and his purpose. I thought of ways to try to illustrate this, and I think that one of the things that I've experienced not too long ago was helpful. Have you ever been in a a very strong snowstorm where it's coming on pretty strongly and you see a squall in front of you as you're driving down the highway. And here you are in a two-lane highway and now now the snow is just coming down precipitously and you are starting to get a little worried because you look in the rearview mirror and you see you've got people In front of you, you've got some other people, you've got ditches off the side of the road, and you've got oncoming traffic. And the intensity of the snow keeps on coming, relentlessly. And you start to experience what is called a whiteout. And so what do you do? You try to, unfortunately, just follow the taillights in front of you as long as you can and hope this person's going in the right direction. But as the snowflakes continue to pound on you, you don't even have the benefit of being in a fog where maybe you can hear and feel rumble strips. You are just full of snow. And dare you slow down? If you slow down, you might end up with an 18-wheeler on top of you. So you keep going, and you don't know where the ditches, You don't know where the oncoming cars are. You don't know... What's in front of you? You can't figure it out. That's a white knuckle moment. You've gone through it probably. Your heart pounds. The Apostle Paul tells us we've got to look on what is on the unseen side. The ambiguity that you have in a whiteout is similar, not equal, but similar to what we experience as we trust in God on the other side. The difference is great. There are no ditches. There's no oncoming traffic. There's no 18-wheeler. The only thing in front of us is the loving grasp of Christ as he pulls us through the snow and he takes us in. So what do we do with suffering? How do we handle that? We have a very careful approach to our bodies because our bodies, the fabric of our bodies has a a loose string. And that loose string is pulled upon day after day after day through the vehicle of time. And as that string of our body and fabric is pulled upon, one day we are going to unravel like a cheap sweater. How are you prepared? How are you clothed? Are you clothed in Christ? Do you really fully believe what he has promised, what he has said? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this?
1: We have uh, had the privilege of having Ken minister uh, the word to us. And what we wanna do for a few minutes is do something a little bit different. Uh, I want to interact with Ken on this issue of suffering. Um, It's not an issue we talk about much. Um, We live in a fairly sanitized culture that doesn't like to deal with the issue of suffering. We wanna be healthy, wealthy, and well. Uh, And yet, as Ken has well said, we need to prepare to die well so we can live well. Uh, And so Ken, as you know, has just been through a fairly significant health issue that most of us have never gone through. And I thought it might be helpful maybe to just pick his brain a little bit to...
0: Watch the expression. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of of has a deep meaning to me. (laughs)
1: Let's pray. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. <laughs> but I thought it might be helpful to just give maybe a little personal insight and perspective into how, how do you walk through a trial like that and still glorify God? And so, um, Ken, it was about eight, nine months
0: ago, you were... It was April last year. It was April yeah. last
1: year, and your surgery at the U of M was uh, May, May. May 7th. so we're coming up on a year, well, eight, nine months right now. Mm-hmm. As you get the diagnosis of brain cancer, and I was there when the doctor gave that diagnosis, and yes. it, it was a very sobering prognosis at that point.
0: It is, because you don't have that uh, sense that, well, the odds are really good that if we do this and such, and this and such. That you will have a 90% chance of recovery, and, and that which goes with that. And this was a different kind of diagnosis because it was more open-ended toward the, toward the end of uh, failure. And that's what you look at and you say, okay, well, if my timeline is really different, uh, how is this different than any other il- illness I've had? And what can I do to, to uh, make the most of my time? I think you look at the way you portion your life a lot differently with respect to how you spend your time that's, that's something that you want to really give attention to. But for me, I will tell you that I felt a lot of peace. And some of you were here and, and prayed for me and, and understood that when I went to University of Michigan, this was such a sudden thing that we weren't sure how it was going to work. And, and I can tell you that your prayers were so, so coveted and, and your, your notes and encouragement were a strong sustaining, uh, of, str- of strong sustaining value to, for me to go through that and just not know what was gonna be next.
1: What are some ways your life has been specifically impacted with the cancer diagnosis and then the subsequent surgery you're still in chemo? Uh, what are some ways that you've just been specifically affected in the last year?
0: I think a lot of Every time I hit the floor in the, in the morning, I'm, I'm thinking about how am I gonna spend my day? Because the long term is not something I can assume. Really, none of us can, really. I mean, it's an illusion for us to think that, eh, well, I've got this much time. You can die of an auto accident. So you have to be cognizant that there is a timeline, but at the same time, you, you have to have some intermediate and and long-term planning, but I'd say that a lot has been focused in my life on what can I do to make sure that the people that I know are reached for Christ. That's really important. And that goes to medical personnel, that goes to uh, neighbors, uh, people that I've wanted to share my faith with, but maybe we've taken the time to do that. I start to look at the acceleration pedal a little bit differently
1: So back in October, you preached uh, at another church in the area, and you did a men's ministry, Mm -hmm. and you had that recorded, Mm -hmm. and you had that sent to your surgeon. Yes. Talk about why you wanted that recorded, and why did you want that uh, to go to him?
0: Well, I was delighted because of the nature of the, the surgery that I had. What I had was a tumor about the size of a golf ball in the left temporal lobe which is right up here in the speech center. And that was very delicate for me because I'm a speaker. And so here I had to have my head opened up for six hours as my surgeon kept me awake for a large part of it so he could interact with me while he, what is done, what's called brain mapping. He could could find out where the location was that he could take it out There was a speech pathologist that was giving me cues that would have me look at things, and I would articulate what I saw, and he was able to cut away the tumor. So that was very different. I wanted him to experience what we now have on our website here. I wanted him to see the success of his work as God worked through his hands as an instrument. And I've received some wonderful encouragement from him because of the talk. So thank you.
1: You also, you also wanted to uh, share the gospel with him. You also wanted to make sure that you weren't wasting your cancer. And I know you said Good that way you, of it. you wanted to uh, use this in a way to truly glorify the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an example to all of us that in the midst of suffering, it could be one of the ways that God is using to use us to minister to somebody else and ultimately to bring, bring him glory. Um, this didn't just affect you. Uh, this obviously affects your wife. Yes. What are some ways you and Gay have walked through this together, and how has this affected your relationship with your wife?
0: Well, we've always had a good relationship. I mean, it's just, I mean, she's my companion, and she's my partner for 30 years. And so when this happened, it was a new wrinkle in terms of what God has brought into our life, but we found it a little bit more streamlined because our children were raised. So that made a difference. But we've been able to continue to deepen in our intimacy, as well as our walk with God. And I have to give my hat to my wife and say, she has done such a stellar job as my partner and companion, being steady, being confident in the Lord, and uh, just a, a woman of great service and uh, mercy toward me. It's just been wonderful. Do you want to add anything to this? <laughs> sure? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I get some points when I get home from this. <laughs> Okay.
1: Was there ever a moment in the midst of this where you you doubted God or you had the why me question? I mean, how how has this affected your relationship with the Lord himself, with Christ himself?
0: That's a great question. I have never felt why me. And I think maybe it's because I've buried a lot of friends. And I have felt that, you know, coming up near 60 years old, I've been able to live longer than some of they they have, and, and I'm just thinking, you know, God has been merciful to give me what He's given me. How could I possibly eschew that or 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 discount that? And, and, and I mean, but bottom line, I'm a sinner, and, and we're all sinners, and we're all going to die. So, I look at this and I say, not why me, but you know, why did you let me live this long? You know, you've been very gra- uh, gracious. Now that doesn't mean that I don't look forward to longevity, if I can have that through medical intervention, or if God would be choose to heal me miraculously, that, that's delightful if that's there, but I will not presume upon his sovereignty coming out threaded through my, my uh, machinations. I don't have that. I don't, I, that's his job and I have to cooperate and submit. You
1: touched on a little bit in your sermon on finishing well. Um, living with an eternal perspective, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think many of us maybe just go through life not really thinking about that. It's I mean, we know it's out there. We, we, we know at some point we're going to die, but we don't really live in the moment-to-moment, day-by-day reality of, I need to live my life as if this is my last days. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How has, has this affected your eternal perspective? How has this kind of affected um, your desire to finish well, however long the Lord has for you, and, and how, how has it really changed, I guess, or given an impetus to finishing well for the glory of
0: God? Thanks, thanks for the invitation to answer that. I, I would say that what has been of value to me started years ago, and I think I shared this when we talked about this last uh, April, I started to read some of the Puritans with regard to their thoughts about dying and it wasn't a morose and macabre type of discussion or or discourse. It It was the reality that they had that life was short and if you take part of your reading and you give it to some of the Puritans who really understood how short life was, it, it enriches you in terms of getting you to think daily about your death in a constructive way, not in a, not in a down way to would depress you, but in a way that makes you think, am I ready? Am I getting prepared? And, and we do, it's in so many other ways. We took it with life insurance, or if you can do it with a will, you could do it. But what about the daily life that, that makes you think it could be today? It could be... An, and that, for some people that's just too much, they have to put it out of their mind. But then I think the surprise in death is not as welcome. You are uncomfortable because you're not prepared for it. And I would say to you that one of the tra- traptor- chapters that has been so helpful to me is Isaac Watts in his book, The World to Come. He has one chapter that is absolutely terrific. I would encourage you, go to the library, Get it, Xerox it, whatever. It's called Surprise and Death. And he talks about what it's like to be an unbeliever and a believer caught off guard. And if you're a believer, he deals with a a whole gradation which says, you're either asleep in your walk with God, or you are tuned up. And there's a huge difference between the two. And it is a motivator to get you to think, objectively, about what you're doing day to day. hope I didn't take too long on that. That's
1: great. That's a great challenge, isn't it? Uh, we need to think through that, and we need to really wrestle with daily. Uh, are we ready to see Christ face to face? And maybe even a practical question along with that is, would Christ be pleased with what I'm doing right now if yes. I were in His presence? Very good. That's good. How has being a part of the church affected you in the midst of this, and you're, you guys are loved. In our church, uh, you're a dear, dear family. How has being a part of the body in the midst of suffering like this
0: uh, affected you? Thanks. Um, I said this last April, that I sometimes would get so caught up in what my gifts were and what my specialties were, and I would think that I was making a good contribution by what I did, and I would in some ways try to almost encourage other people to become more like me in some areas of discipline and reading and, and growing. And I mean, it was my arrogance. It was my lack of humility where I started to look at aspects of the body of Christ that we hear about in 1 Corinthians 12 and starting to emphasize one aspect of service and role more than another. And when I was flat on my back, and I was having my head opened up with a new sunroof, um, I came to realize that other people are just ministering to my family, my, my daughter, my wife, my, me, and, and I, was in a, I was in a vulnerable position, and the body of Christ just came in like the whole body of Christ and took care of us. And, and that really set me back and made me think, you know what, God knows what he's doing. He knows exactly how to lay it all out and he knows the whole panoply and he's pulling it off really well and he doesn't need my suggestions.
1: How can we pray for you?
0: I would love to have an extension in my life so I could be continue to be productive for his glory and his honor. If he wants to heal me, I'd be delighted to receive that. However, I want most to please what he wants done and finish well so that others would be encouraged that this does not have to be a frightening situation. This could be a time of great and rich intimacy with a God who truly exists. Let's
1: pray. Father, thank you for our brother Ken and we thank you for his faithful ministry in our midst. Thank you for his communication of your word this morning we thank you for the privilege and the joy of being reminded that it's not until we're prepared to, to die well that we can truly live well. And so, God, thank you that for us as believers in Jesus Christ, that there is no fear in death, that you have removed the sting of death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, help us to live, as Ken has exhorted us, uh, in an attitude of eternally thinking about whether our lives uh, will matter and what they'll contribute to eternity. Lord, help us to be those who live every moment as if it's the last, and we pray that you'll help us to be those who faithfully follow you. Lord, we pray for Ken and Gay. We pray, as Ken has said, that you would graciously give him many, many more years uh, to serve you, to serve your church, Uh, and Lord, we trust you for that, though, and Pray your will be done and that in the end, whatever happens, your name be glorified and your name be honored and that Christ will be exalted. So, Lord, this is our earnest prayer and plea. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity right now to give our gifts to you, our offerings. You've been so gracious to us. We want to give back a portion of what you've given to us. So, Lord, as we do so and as Gay comes to minister to us in music, uh, we pray and ask, Lord, that we'll leave with an attitude of worship and praise, because there is hope in death because of what Christ has accomplished. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.